Welcome to I Just Don't Know, a podcast where we try to learn something new, challenge my opinions, and hope to make the misinformed informed. I can openly say I've spoken when I did not need to, been unnecessarily controversial, and shared my misinformed opinion, thinking it was not. I am Rob Clulo, and in this podcast I will try to right some wrongs, take on a new topic each episode that I think are new, but in fact, I just don't know. This episode is about exploration of the unknown beyond our solar system. It is things that are beyond our imagination, space and time that we cannot even fathom. Some might argue that we can literally only speculate and just guess of what is out there in the dark depths of space. But in fact, there is clearly a community of the community and a big part of the science world dedicated to exploring beyond our solar system and that while we have a lot to learn on planet earth and to the, around the planets in our solar system there is definitely curiosity about what is out there in what they call interstellar space beyond our the grasp of our sun and our solar system so put on your spacesuits and gear up for a trip into the vacuum of space out of the clutches of our sun our star and beyond our own planetary neighbourhood. So my assumption in this episode is that while I did study physics to AS level at school and have watched pretty much all of Brian Cox's documentaries on space on, on the BBC, and I've listened to the occasional podcasts on from someone uh, from the scientific community uh, about the solar system or the latest theories about black holes or string theory or something like that. And I say I would have a general understanding of, of the solar system with Venus, Jupiter, Mars and Saturn and Earth and just generally understanding of, 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 the, of the planets that are in our solar system. And that the universe is expanding from a center point that they call the Big Bang. The generally accepted theories of of, of space and time. Uh, however, I actually realized that a lot of my knowledge is, is based on sort of quite old-fashioned or basic understanding of what I learned at school. But that was a while ago now. And simple things like, well, was Pluto or is Pluto a planet? Why did it become a dwarf planet? Well, that's what I'm going to explore and realise that there's a lot that has developed since then uh, and that we've learned so much from about our solar system, but also that from the things like the Hubble telescope and some spacecrafts that have travelled across the, the, the length of our, of pretty much the length of our solar system and, and beyond that I wasn't aware of, that we we know so much more than we did when I was at school, and there's less theory, more actual potential evidence of 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 things like distance and time, and an understanding that our solar system has a history that we didn't even realise. So, while I understand uh, that. We, we what I know is is quite it's quite basic what I'm trying to do in this episode is prove that this 
that actually there's quite a lot there that I didn't know about and that a lot of people potentially don't know about that we've learned from these epic missions over the last 30, 40 years that just take time to to get the results and get the information. So listen up. I hope you enjoy and uh, and uh, let's uh, let's see what we can discover beyond our solar system. So this episode was actually inspired by a TV series that hopefully some of you know about. It's called The Expanse. It's on Amazon Prime and it's a really interesting TV drama that's completely fictional, sci-fi, based in the future. It's, uh, but it's on to its last and final season that I've, I've finished now. And uh, it's based on the books um, by James S.A. Corey. Um, and it's all about how humanity has colonized our solar system. And that it does follow sort of a storyline of, of, um, of these protagonists, a group of people that come together from different backgrounds. So that's a classic story. But the overall summary of, of The Expanse, if you don't know, is that you have Earth that has developed into a united nations. Everyone is together. Food shortages have left people having to unite and work together. But there's also been a colonization of Mars, and that is actually broken away from the Earth and uh, the Mars Republic, or if I get um, the... Yeah, the Mars Republic has is, is it, well, has taken on a very long-term effort to terraform Mars and turn it into a rainforest, forests, bring greenery back to sort of the, the, the barren planet that is Mars. But they've become quite a military-driven nation. And there is a rivalry there between Mars and Earth. But also to add another faction into the whole story is that there's these, and this is where um, this will we'll go further in this episode, is that there's the, the belters, as they call them, and those are the people that were born and lived and died in space. And these are the people that have colonised things like the moons of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter, and the, the belt is in terms of the, the Kuiper belt on the outskirts of the solar system, a, a ring of asteroids on the far reach of the solar system, but also uh, a ring of asteroids between Jupiter and Mars as well. And these space stations that have been built to mine these huge rocks and all the minerals that are including. But there's a massive division there between the belters and Mars and Earth. The belters are treated as almost as, well, they are treated as slaves and second citizens, pretty much. So really interesting series that I highly recommend. They do try to stick to the physics and try to stick to the truth of of what is um what could have happened for example those that are born in in zero gravity in the space stations the belters if they're on earth it is incredibly painful for them because they've got used to zero gravity or very little gravity or artificial gravity whereas earth the pull of gravity is so strong it actually is sheer it's actually painful and they use it actually as torture uh, in what in the first season when they find some belter spies um so it's pretty brutal but using physics to make an impact and how the story develops is that eventually earth and earth and mars sort of fight it out uh, and the conflict sort of occurs and 
it's terrible for, for, for both sides and influenced by an introduction of sort of an alien particle species. But then the, the belters actually unite and they become very tribal. It's almost reminiscent of sort of the pirates in the Caribbean with uh, different sort of groups of ships pillaging and, and uh, sacking other ships that they find on their own. Eventually the belts unites, as I said, and uh, and fights back and sends uh, rocks towards Earth. Um, but yeah, I don't want to ruin too much about the story, but overall it really gets you thinking about how potentially we could have call it, we could in the future, or if we discover a way of traveling to the speed that they do in this show, in the show. And then I think in the sort of season three or four, they talk about the person who managed to discover the, the, the engine or the, the power um, core that allows people to travel to that, to that speed, those speeds. Um, but really interesting. It's things like momentum in space that, Obviously, it's a vacuum, so there's nothing slowing you down. So you have to be really control your speed differently to the way you'd expect in, let's say, driving a car on Earth, where friction will slowly make your car come to a stop if you stop accelerating, stop putting the gas, the pedal on the gas. The it's just a completely different world, and uh, they really they really stick to it well in in the show. So if you're a fan of the physics, especially physics in space and things like that. Uh, it's uh, it's really interesting, and that te- takes me on sort of great into the sort of the idea of if we we were setting up a space station or colonizing a moon in our solar system, but even beyond in terms of the in terms of the asteroid belt, the the idea of actually making artificial gravity and therefore allowing things to grow and humans to exist and what they do what they do actually in the show and you see in the first sort of massive station that they've built Ceres station which is named after the of uh, Ceres which is a, a moon uh, is a, is one of the largest moons in um, it's a dwarf planet is one of the largest moons in, in between the orbits of, of Mars and Jupiter so in that sort of first belt of asteroids in our solar system and I'll come on to that later about how the solar system is set up that I didn't even realize. So I didn't know that there was a belt of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter, and then again further out where Pluto is. But Ceres is a, is a dwarf planet, and uh, it's part of the sort of asteroid belt, as I said. And what they do in this show is they they create it. They've got a it's a station that's called Ceres instead, and what the station does is that it rotates through nuclear power. Uh, new, well, two nuclear sort of power stations make it one with a backup that call make it sort of rotate, and by rotating in a sort of a circle, it creates that centrifugal force and that artificial gravity, allowing some form of gravity to exist, and therefore there is capabilities of growing crops. But even more interesting, what they actually show in the in the expanse is if you are in zero gravity and you injure yourself and you hurt yourself your body doesn't or isn't able to send sort of the, the the necessary white blood cells and support to the wound to for it to heal in a normal traditional way it takes too long and therefore you will bleed bleed out or not repair yourself properly and therefore you have to have these special machines that they've created that they don't explain the science unfortunately but 
they do highlight that if someone is injured or broken leg or broken arm in zero gravity or in artificial gravity potentially they need to get to a planet or uh, as i said artificial gravity sorry to allow the healing process to begin so again they go really into the detail of the physics and that's why artificial gravity would be so important and this idea of a rotating space station um, would actually make it doable potentially viable for humans to exist out in the outskirts of our solar system uh, away from any large sort of large planet um, but within reach of of the sun so so that got me thinking about um the the belt uh, and the asteroid belt between mars and jupiter but also beyond that what is called as the, the kuiper belt and while i was obviously taught about as you might have done is being taught about the planets of our solar system but what is actually sort of beyond that and i've heard of the kuiper belt in the past but i didn't really know what it was and we're going to look into that in a bit more detail but what is really interesting is the this is that i wasn't really aware of the missions that were sent to across through our solar system um with a plan to actually go beyond our solar system and discover what might be beyond. So it starts off with in the 70s or in the 60s, sorry, a guy called Michael Minovich uh, did while on a summer job at a jet propulsion lab uh, in the US, he found that at certain points in time, the planets in the solar system were aligned that allowed gravitational pull of each planet to slingshot a satellite, space probe, whatever you want to call it, through our solar system, the neighborhood of our planets, to the edge of the solar system. Traditionally, sending it in a direct line would take too long, but by using the planet's gravitational pull, slingshotting it from planet to planet, this is doable, and it's amazing. This guy, Michael Minovich, wrote a paper called The Invention of Gravity-Propelled Interplanetary Space Travel in 1965 on a summer job. Imagine doing that, but that's pretty epic. But in the 60s, the moon mission, mission to the moon, space program, NASA was at its height, and there's a huge, huge amount of funding going on behind it uh, to make sure we stayed ahead of, of the Soviet Union. And so it doesn't surprise me that he was this person was inspired to look at this and uh, it wrote this paper and this was the basis of two missions that were set up in the 70s uh, the first one is voyager one uh, and the second one is voyager two um, so they were voyager one was a space probe launched by nasa in 1977 as part of of the voyager program and 16 days later, its twin, Voyager 2, was launched as well. So the Voyager 1 was uh, operated for 44 years, 5 months, and 11 days, um, and is still still going, supposedly, into interstellar space. But I've ruined it there a little bit for you. But let's look at the background. So it's uh, the first one was 800 kg, and worked on by NASA with by 150 engineers, scientists, costing over 250 million dollars. That's probably more than a billion dollars now. 
Originally, Voyager 1's mission was to explore Saturn and the Jupiter systems, to sort of take pictures of the rings of Saturn and understand the gas giant Jupiter. It also had a golden record attached to it, uh, which uh, had information about the humankind on Earth at the time in the the 70s, a time capsule, just in case any intelligent life forms came across the probe. The mission and the construction went flawlessly, actually, and there was a, a great moment for for space travel in general and for the US. Uh, it was obviously hijacked by the polit- politicians, but it was a really important moment for the, for the space travel community and the, and the scientific community. And what it did, actually, Voyager 1, was that when it was 6 billion kilometres away, it turned around for the first time. It turned off all its instruments to take pictures. And it actually took a picture of Earth, our first ever self-portrait. A little green and blue dot that was sent back to us. And it was the first time we'd ever taken a picture of Earth. And while you can Google now a picture of Earth and it's been CGI'd and and people and there's seems like we've taken thousands and thousands of pictures of earth that was the first one taking taken from a very long way away but it's a self-portrait of where we're from and where we all exist so when it um it carried on going and it, and it managed to sort of take pictures um of uh, of saturn and it did flybys of Jupiter and Saturn, and also the largest moon, Titan. And either they had a, they apparently had a choice. Though they could have gone towards uh, Pluto, or they could have gone via Titan, Saturn's largest moon. And in the end, they chose to go via Titan. Um, and when they, what they actually did, it's really interesting. Is that they when they went beyond they took these epic pictures of the belt of the rings of saturn and uh, is that they in order to manage it and uh, and keep managing the sort of energy and the power of of the of the probe and being allowed to still t- take measurements and send information back to earth the the biggest the most uh, challenging aspect was to keep energy so that it could make sure the interest didn't get too cold and while it did have the heat of the sun, it's becoming less and less and less. So in terms of the setup of the solar system, especially on the edge, you have the the control of the sun or the heat of the sun. And then you have, and and that takes you all the way to sort of the, the, the Kuiper belt as such. But then you have something called a heliosphere. Um, it's, uh, and that is basically the atmospheric layer of the sun that is larger than what the sort of is 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 beyond the sort of immediate control of the sun but it's like bigger so imagine sort of a uh, a raindrop falling to the to the ground and um sort of in the the bottom part of the raindrop at in the very center is the sun and in a small sort of circular shape um in a sort of sphere shape sorry you have our sort of immediate solar system um, and on the edge of that sphere you have 
the Kuiper Belt and sort of big ring of of asteroids um, and rocks that is um, supposedly feeds the different sort of asteroids and comets that that, that enter the solar system. But beyond that, you have something called the helisphere that is the rest of the of the raindrop, and because it is, and it creates that shape of almost like that sort of raindrop shape with sort of a tail and a head and and with the solar system sort of right in the in the middle of that head and that's because if you think move it sideways the galaxy is moving at a humongous speed around the center of our galaxy the milky way galaxy like going around imagine a solar system in itself we're going around in circles and therefore it's and arguably we are accelerating as well with expansion of the of the of the universe as well and that creates almost like a trail a speed trail like you're driving in a direction and so this larger part the rest of the raindrop is that shape and it's called the helisphere uh, it's is influenced by by the sun and we're not sure exactly how much is influenced by the sun and i'll come on to that in a second about what voyager one discovered uh, and also voyager two but what it is doing is going into something called the the bow the bow shock which is the influence of other stars in ahead of us that we're hitting as with you cycling into or driving into along a road you're hitting sort of wind there is some sort of something in your way and therefore you're having to displace that push that out of the way and it's the same thing and therefore that's what it's also pushing on us creating that drag effect and creating that shape and that's what the helisphere sort of looks like um but what Voyager 1 did pick up is that when it did leave that sort of the sort of immediate sphere of our of our solar system is that a change there was a change in particles measured on the instruments and there wasn't they weren't 100 percent sure if this was accurate because they had only had one reading but they stopped they there was an increase in charged particles from from another source not from our sun and there was the, the the charged particles from the sun were measured consistently so they know what that looks like but there was a, a clear change and these different charged particles are from exploding stars and supernovas in the in in different sort of galaxies um and they saw a drop out on the 25th of august 2012 so what sort of 30 40 years after and the particles measured were flipped and stayed and there was an there was an argument perhaps was was the plasma instrument not working but they were pretty sure it was working but what actually and this is where science is so interesting they they weren't sure if this was the case and they weren't they couldn't be sure but what actually happened is that there was a solar flare recorded in our sun and then 13 months later it was picked up on the voyager one a spike in particles that we can associate with our sun proving that Voyager 1 was definitely out of us out of our solar system and into interstellar space within the heliosphere and this is this is just conclusive that it was picking up the measurement the plasma instrument was definitely picking up more particles from other suns than our own and proving that it had definitely left the 
outskirts and left our solar system, the first probe to leave our solar system. And it's uh, it's pretty pretty a testament to the what the, to the to the engineers that built Voyager One that it's it's the fact it's still going. And it says it says here that the the Voyager team tested their spacecraft's trajectory correction maneuver in late 2017, the first time they'd used the thrusters since 1980. Um, a project enabling the mission to be extended by two to three years. Voyager's one extended mission is expected to continue until 2025, when its radiostope thermoelectric generators will no longer supply enough electrical power to operate its scientific instruments. It's still going to still go until 2000 and 25 and what was really interesting though is that Voyager 2 with Voyager 2 though is why well, it was launched at a very similar time and saw similar sort of similar sort of um, same sort of success Voyager 2 also remains in contact with Earth and is set out to carry on into the dis into the far reaches of us of our so beyond our solar system as well. So they not only did one in, make one probe, one space probe, but they made two, and that is pretty cool. So what Voyager two does, and it also remains in contact with Earth and NASA's Deep Space Network, as they call it, and it maintain really they very smartly maintain the energy to keep keep all the instruments warm. But what Voyager two did is that they managed to take a picture and go across and, and cover the Uranus and the Neptune systems in the late 80s for the first time. And so they've managed to tick the boxes of our current solar system. But what I find is really impressive is that they've managed to go beyond what there is expected and have a mission in itself to, into interstellar space. On the internet, you will see the, if you go on the NASA or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, you can actually go and see where Voyager 1 is estimated to be or the distance from Earth. So currently it's going very quickly. <laughs> Voyager 1's distance from Earth is is 40, well, 155.79 AU. And we'll come on to AU in another episode, but that is effectively the distance between uh, the, the 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 sun and the earth, and uh, so that is around fourteen, um, fourteen billion million miles. And one, two, three, yeah, fourteen point five billion miles. And Voyager one distance distance from the sun is um, yeah, so it's a little bit more than that. It is about twenty one point three five twenty one hours, just under one light time away. Uh, which I don't quite understand that one, but then Voyager two is is 130 AU it's distance from the Earth and Sun is about 12 billion miles away. So they and they're still going, and you, there is they call it the cosmic ray data, and on the there's a little green bar showing how much they're getting from the Sun and how much they're getting from interstellar space. Uh, so it's super super crazy how far away they are now, and they keep going. And then this comes on to a really interesting topic to sort of round this off about 
sort of um, the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 is the, before we come on to some other space probes that I want to talk about, is that how does this help in asking the question about what is beyond our solar system in terms of alien life? And so in 2040, someone writes, in it, the, the US will be in a very different place, as you can imagine. Um, and the world will be very different. Um, we will perhaps be on solely nuclear power. We won't be using nuclear power. Uh, he says here, Prince George will be 27 years old, potentially in line to be king, king of Great Britain soon. But overall, it's we need to look at what does this mean in terms of space travel and things like that. So, so let's start off with um, the number of stars in our galaxy. So the Conservancy estimated at 100 billion stars in our galaxy. And of, of, of those 100 billion, 20 to 50% probably harbour planetary systems. So they look like similar sort of to the solar system that we know. Um, and there is an estimate that has become more and more reliable because of the Kepler Space Telescope and ground observation that there is an increasing number of something called the exoplanets. Um, and that is starts with, uh, this all goes back to 1961, where the National Radio Astronomy Observationary in Greenbank, uh, that a guy called Drake, developed a sort of a now famous Drake equation, which calculates how many advanced and detectable civilizations there should be in the Milky Way in any one year. And this this number actually turns out to be quite quite large, um, and it is based on the number of Earth-centric suppositions. And of course, civilizations can collapse and come and go and exist at different times, but basically it's a prediction of how many exoplanets, planets that are like Earth, potentially exist. So not all of these exoplanets are capable of sustaining Earth-like life, um, but the equation, Drake's equation, estimates that one in five in the system could, and the biofriendly worlds from 0% to 100% would actually go on to develop life. Uh, in turn, the, there has to be some form of percentage chance that there will be some form of life on one of these exoplanets and then within this life there has to be some form of percentage chance that this life will be intelligent so the mere existence of intelligent life form tells us nothing however unless they have the ability to make themselves known and manipulate radio waves and any form of electromagnetic signaling and Drake's equation estimates that 10 to 20% smart civilization would be able to achieve this. Obviously, with ourselves, humans have been around for 10,000, 50,000 years, potentially longer, but it's in such a small fraction of that time that we've been able to manipulate electromagnetic waves and radio waves and communicate in that sense. So it's like sort of trying to catch someone when there's uh, when the chance of seeing each other at the same time is very slim, um, you could argue. So, how long would it take for these civilizations uh, to blink their signals our way? 
So our sun survive, should survive 10 billion years and life on Earth has been around for about 3.5 billion years and radio, um, as I said, we have been, humans have been around uh, with radio wave capability for a couple hundred years perhaps. If we don't survive very long, uh, our signal will go dark um, and that is the unfortunate situation. But if we survive for another 10,000 years, um, we will be presenting our sort of our, our presence in in the galaxy and beyond our solar system for much longer, won't we? So the chances of that actually crossing paths with a similar similar civilization in Milky Way will increase. So factor all this together and add in a bit of guesstimation. Um, and uh, as they call it, statistical seasoning, as they as they describe it here, is that the results or possibilities will vary a lot. Um, there might be a thousand detectable civilizations out there at any given time, and if we play sort of be quite open, um, it could be more than that. It could be hundreds of millions. Um, and imagine if there's around ten thousand civilizations that are detectable at any one point. That means we should detect detect life at some point. So to to recap on that, so actually, so factor on all this together, stone and <laughs> stone little statistical seasoning. If you play the game conservatively, lowballing all the variables, you might get about a thousand detectable civilizations out there at any given time. And be more liberal, you get a hundred you get hundreds of millions. The interactive, interactive lets you play the game yourself. Imagine there are 10,000 detectable civilizations and we are likely to find alien life by 2040. If there are a million, we discover alien life by 2028. That is using sheer statistics. So how is this? How do we figure this out? Well, astronomers look for alien signals, have examined only a few thousand star systems so far. But... At the rate at which researchers are able to process the massive amounts of data that radio telescopes receive doubles approximately every 18 months or two years, meaning it grows by a factor of 10 every six years or so. The Milky Way has around 100 billion, 100 billion stars, systems that conceivably host intelligent life. Under these assumptions, an estimate of 100,000 active civilizations in the galaxy would mean one per million star systems. At the exponential rate of growth in signal processing, researchers will have examined 1 million candidates by around 2034, bringing the odds of discovery into the, into the probable. Adding or removing zero from the estimate, the number of civilizations out there will merely add or subtract six years from the estimate, respectively. Since that, how long it's, since that's how long it takes to expand our search proportionally. So see you in 2040, aliens. So to go down on that again, basically... It's not an issue of is there Earth or, or aliens out there. It's actually sheer time that it takes to process what we're receiving from other planets. And that if we are improving our ability to absorb this information and review it and process the signals that we are receiving every two years and increasing by a factor of 10 every six to seven years, we are getting, we're able to process that. And it's, as it says there, we, the odds of, a civilization existing is one in one in a million. Well, we should have processed a million 
candidates, exoplanets, by 2034. So the chances actually become probable, one in a million. If it doesn't, of course, we might have to do it more. It's only odds. It's like rolling a dice. You don't always get a, a six every time you roll the dice six times. But the fact it becomes probable means that either or, even if it's if the there's less civilizations out there than we that we hope, well, there is a high there is a chance according to this methodology that either in 2034 or sometime between 2034 and 2040 we should really detect some form of intelligent civilization. So that's in 2015, sort of 15 years time, roughly a bit more than that, a bit less than that. So let's see if we do meet or hear anything. To finish off this then, so my assumption at the beginning was that I had this general understanding of the different planets from Mercury to Pluto. When I grew up, Pluto was a planet. Um, I understood they, those are the planets you built your sort of scientific exper experiments with the different sizes of Jupiter and Saturn with the rings and cold sort of blue Neptune and there was a general assumption of that is what the solar system all coming from a central point of the Big Bang. These general understandings that were of, of physics from school, momentum, no gravity, but my knowledge of what actually the scientific community had done over the years in the last 30-40 years was fairly limited because while they did it in the 70s we've only actually really gained some great insights in the last 10 years especially some really big most important one was about 10 years ago which is that the voyager one voyager two have left our solar system and have entered the heliosphere and the interstellar space and that these incredible space probes that were built in the 70s by these incredible engineers with the technology that they had back then these, these space probes are still going and they are picking up using epic, so they've sent back these epic pictures of our planets, of Saturn, of Jupiter through the 80s and 90s. But what is most interesting here is that they've gone and they are still going into interstellar space where they will continue to pick up more information and send back until they potentially, or until they will, eventually run out of power. Um, nuclear power or sunlight, electromagnetic power to keep their instruments warm, keep the whole thing going and eventually they will go cold and no longer be active. But until that time, they're going to continue to be on the f true frontier of humankind in the solar system, the world, the universe that we live in right now in our sort of tiny little pocket of what we call the universe. So really interesting hope you enjoyed that and i really hope that we discover more and uh, as they enter into interstellar space so please join me um for more episodes on this i'm going to look at other space probes that i didn't really know about and some of the incredible things they've done and uh, and i hope you listen to that and really enjoy the fact that there is so much more to the sort of general teachings that we know about space and we have so much, so much more knowledge of, of potentially what is out there um, beyond, beyond just planet Earth that we talk about a lot. So it's a bit of a, a time off from planet Earth. Let's look at the solar system beyond and try and think really, really big picture. Um, yeah, 
thanks so much guys for listening and uh, look forward to the next episode